actually start reading at verse 4 through 19. John 4, 4 through 19. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. About 35 years ago, Janice and I were poor seminary students in the Philadelphia suburbs. Knock on the door. It's a salesman trying to sell us a vacuum cleaner. I wasn't interested, but he had, he had a case of liquid refreshment if I listened to his pitch, so he came on in. He said, Get, bring your vacuum cleaner to me. So I went and got it. He turned it on after he said, this is a dinosaur. I knew we were in trouble when he called my beloved vacuum cleaner a dinosaur. He turned it in, turned it on, and took this high-powered light and put it right behind the bag that was on the upright. And you could see all this dirt spewing into the air. All of a sudden, vacuuming was personal. It was clearly unhealthy for my wife, my boy, and me to be breathing all that dirt. You could say I came under conviction, reasoning from the evidence that was in fact a dinosaur, 
I needed a new one. And here was the clincher. He said, sir, you are just rearranging the dirt in your house. I was convinced I need a new vacuum cleaner. We all need the same experience regarding sin. If we're going to be spiritually awakened and enjoy God, His grace, and one another, we can't just go on rearranging the dirt in our souls. Effectively, that's what happens to the woman in our story. Jesus loves her into relationship with himself by exposing her sin. He will not allow her to continue rearranging the dirt in her soul. It wouldn't be good for her. It wouldn't be good for her relationship with God. It wouldn't be good for people in her, her life. Are you just rearranging the dirt in your soul? If so, you need to understand the doctrine of conviction. Let's look at three things. Number one, what is conviction? I'll say two things about what conviction is. First, conviction is seeing and agreeing. Seeing ourselves as God sees us and agreeing with God's perspective on our lives. How does Jesus get the woman to see herself as God sees her and to agree with God's perspective on her life? It's verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. He's shining the light on the dirt in her soul. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Technically true. We're good at hiding the dirt in our souls from others and from ourselves. And I think she's hoping Jesus will go on to another subject. He loves her too much to leave it there. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Can you see her face beginning to turn red? He sees the dirt in my soul. And all she can do is marvel at the source of his knowledge. Verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That would be the understatement of the year. Translated, given the fact that you know this about me and you've never met me, you obviously have been given this information from God. So she has to see and agree. She sees that Jesus has knowledge of her condition. You've had five husbands. Who knows? Divorce, death, who knows? The one you're living with is not your husband. Her life's a mess, mess relationally. And she agrees that, in fact, that's a problem. No excuses. Although she tries to change subjects about worship. I'll get to that in several weeks. But, beloved, what a gift. How gracious that Jesus initiates the discussion with this woman and he says, go call your husband. We would never on our own talk to God about our sin. God has to bring us to that. Because we don't take it seriously. 
And what you don't know about yourself may be hurting you. A couple weeks ago, Janice was with the grandkids in their backyard in, in Lynchburg, and she was out by the uh, sandbox, and she picked up a little toy that had some you know, crevices on the backside of it, and she looked, and there was a spider. So she, she studied it, took a picture of it, then went and Googled it, and it turns out it probably was something poisonous, maybe a black widow. My kids don't want their kids unaware of the fact that they're playing with toys with poisonous spiders in them. And so the Holy Spirit is pleased to shine the light of biblical truth into our hearts to help us to see our sin and to agree with God that we cannot, as the Puritans used to say, continue to live carelessly. You cannot continue to live carelessly. Look, in every area of your life, you don't tolerate it. Pilots who fly your planes, surgeons, your financial accounts, people who prepare your food, you, you go out to a restaurant and you run into the chef. And What sort of safety precautions do you, do you uh, use with the food? You're, oh, we don't worry about it. We just leave it out all night. We don't refrigerate anything. You don't tolerate carelessness in parts of your life. Why would you do so on the most important thing of the dirt that is in your soul? Can you see Jesus is not there to condemn her, though he could, but to love her into relationship with himself? He says, go call your husband. Come here. Bring your sin to me, and he will not condemn her. Now, you need to know the difference between the voice of conviction, which the Holy Spirit is always pleased to speak, and the voice of condemnation, which is from the pit of hell and from the devil. The devil will condemn you. It's vague. It attacks you. It tells you you're no good. It's rarely specific about your sin. It's disparaging. It tends to put you in a, oh, woe is me, I'm terrible. The Spirit convicts you specifically to bring you to the light of Jesus. The second thing I want to say about conviction is that conviction is ultimately about God's glory. With God, sin is personal. Notice how David put it in Psalm 51. I've got the verse, I believe, in your outline. I know my transgressions. Now he's referring to the whole, uh, this is the first psalm he wrote about the whole fiasco with adultery with Bathsheba, killing her husband Uriah at the battlefront. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You can tell David's heart is awakened. You can tell he is under conviction because he agrees that God knows everything he has a right to judge, and when he judges, it is always fair, always judicious, always accurate. And that God takes your sin personally against you have I sinned. Do you see how different that is than the way we usually talk about sin? Oh, I broke the rules. I, 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 I broke the Ten Commandments. And of course, sin is in relation to the law of God. Of course we believe that. But stop and think, what do the rules, what do the commandments tell you? They reveal to you the glory of God and his character. For God 
it's personal. Because when you obey his law, you bring to pass the ultimate thing he is seeking on the earth, and that is the reflection in human beings of his own glory. God is looking to be glorified in you and me and all his creatures. He wants reflected back to him the glory of his character. And of course, the law of God tells us what that is. The law is there for your good. When you obey, you are most happy and most human. And so when at best we ignore or at worst we spurn God's demands, we are saying we know better than you. That's personal with God. We assault him. That's personal with God. When I live independently and self-reliant and I forsake the truest lover of my soul, I am saying that a relationship with something else is more precious, more necessary, more valuable than God himself. It's personal with God. And this is why the, in the Old Testament, when God talks to his people about his sin, he says, you have forsaken me. And Hosea is a prophetic book that shows that when we sin, we are pursuing false lovers. With God, it's personal. Your heart is adoring something inferior to God and developing a loyalty to it. So don't think of sin so much, first of all, as what you do, but as a condition. It's a loyalty that issues in certain behaviors and attitudes. And sadly, what sin leaves you self-absorbed, what drives you is self-absorption, and self-protection, self-service, self-indulgence, which has to leave you indifferent to God. It's personal with God. And that's why Paul says, as a condition, sin leaves you dead and unresponsive to the things of God. Just one verse that illustrates that, 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. That's about the worst thing that could be said about a human being. That they don't get it spiritually. It's, it would be like going to a world-class art museum and blindfolding yourself. Or you spend the whole season cheering on your favorite team. You save up your money to go to the championship. You get to the championship and you go into the restroom and you stay the entire game in the restroom. <laughs> Sin blinds you to the glory of God. It is personal with God. So conviction is seeing and agreeing in order to deal ruthlessly with your sin. The Bible calls that repentance, turning from sin to the delightfulness of Christ. Turning from sin to Christ. One of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packer, defined repentance this way. Repentance is a settled refusal to set limits to the claim God makes on you. So if you know yourself well, you let God make certain claims on your soul, but little areas you reserve just for you. You are tempted to take God and your life on your own terms. The story is told of a park ranger in Yellowstone leading some hikers down a trail to a fire tower, 
and he was so intent on explaining the flora and the fauna that he didn't hear a distress call coming from his radio, and finally they started blurring, and he turned the radio off and finally gets into the fire tower, and a ranger met him breathlessly saying, why did you turn off your radio from the fire tower? We saw you were being stalked by a grizzly bear. Beloved, some of us are so busy talking Defending ourselves, explaining ourselves, criticizing others, controlling others, getting people to like us and esteem us, promoting ourselves, that we drown out the sweet, convicting voice of the Spirit. Do you know how your selfishness is impacting those around you? There was a, a brief window when I was in college when my two older brothers and I were all at home together with one car. <laughs> So, I wanted to go somewhere. Look in the garage. The car's there. Grabbed my wallet. Grabbed the keys. Went into the garage. Closed the door to the garage. Got in the opened the door to the car. Got in the car. Turned the car. Backed it out. I didn't close the door. I slammed the door on the side of the garage all the way the opposite direction. I was in such a selfish hurry to get out of the car to serve my needs. I did this to the car door, all the way around. It's funny now. (laughs) My brothers couldn't use the car. No one could use the car. I broke it. Pure selfishness. Are you repenting of the ways your selfishness impacts those around you? Second point. We've looked at what conviction is. Second point, how do you recognize true conviction? How how do you know you're seeing and agreeing? See, it's not the same thing as I'm not performing up to my standards. That's still about you. It's not the same thing as I'm not performing up to the, the standards my wife has for me. That's still about me. It's not the same thing as I'm losing my reputation in the community. That's still about me. Let me just identify briefly five things that will help you recognize true conviction. First, desperation. I'm fed up with my life, with the dirt I'm rearranging, and I'm going to stop blaming other people. You see this in the attitude of the prodigal son, the story in Luke 15. He takes his daddy's money, he goes off, squanders it, he comes to his senses, and what's his basic attitude? Father, I've sinned against you. Just take me back as a servant. No demands. I'm just just happy serving in your house. And that's really different than, I'm sorry I got caught. Pride. I'm sorry this makes me look bad. Pride. I'm sorry others don't like me when I do that. Pride. I'm sorry I disappointed myself because I had higher expectations of myself. You tell me. Pride. The thief on the cross when Jesus was dying displays true desperation. He says, don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence of condemnation. We're receiving what we deserve. Desperation. Secondly, disdain for sin, like you come out and you see the nail sticking in your car tire and the air is... You hate what the nail has done to your tires. And sin lets all the air of life out of your soul. It deflates you from being all that is good. It keeps you from functioning normally. 
And again, if you're going to take a nail out of the tire, what do you need to do? Plug it with something. And this is, I don't have time to develop it, but this is where Paul's genius of his ethics in the epistles is put off and put on. You stop doing this, you put this in its place. Put off, put on, put off, put on. You have really negative thoughts about somebody, put that off and put on praying for them, just as an example. Third, you possess a desire to receive instruction. You know you're under conviction when you want God to teach you. And the Word of God becomes life, it becomes your counselors, your friends. Or as David pleaded in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That is desperation. Going to God saying, may your word become a light to my path. Fourth, the Spirit creates a sweet defensivelessness in you. That got a red line in the text underneath it. Dictionary didn't recognize it. Defensivelessness. It means you're unoffendable. I'm listening to a book right now by a Brant Hansen called Unoffendable. And do I need it? It is, anybody heard of it? It is really, really good. Simple premise, given the magnitude of my sins in God's sight, how can I be offended at other people? It's a good book. Fifth, you have a willingness to make a public declaration of sin. We haven't read it yet, but maybe uh, Cyril preached on this a couple of weeks ago. But the lady, the Samaritan woman, goes back into town and she says, come meet a man who told me everything about me. Man, the shame she was hiding is gone. And the town experiences a revival. More on that in another sermon. And ironically, she's a better witness there than the 12 disciples buying subs at Subway. That's the segue to the last point in the sermon. Conviction. How do conviction and salvation scream irony? Um, irony is, a, is, a, a, is God's idea. He invented it, and it's all through the Bible. God loves it to communicate truth through irony. This story is full of irony. I'm not going to uh, identify all the points of irony, even in the text we looked at today, but I just want to uh, go through a few with you. For example, ironically, the woman came to avoid exposure to people, yet she knew, she met the person who knew her best. Seeking to hide her shame, she had to be completely confronted with it in the presence of Jesus in detail. So Jesus has her cornered. She has nowhere to flee but to Jesus. In other words, the one who knows you best loves you most. The gospel. The one who knows you best loves you most. He alone can deal with her sin with tenderness and grace because he himself understands the power of temptation and he has the only answer to condemnation, bearing it in his body on his cross. Now she knows Jesus. Ironically, when you get to the place where you have nothing, you declare moral bankruptcy, then you can receive everything. Ironically, you become rich by admitting your poverty. She was saved by grace. Grace. 
Now she knows Jesus. Ironically, to work right as a human being, you have to say you don't work right. In other words, you become worthy of salvation by admitting you're completely worthy to be saved. All your worth comes from another person. She saw in Jesus all she needed to be right with God. And so if sin is putting anything in the place of God, then salvation is God putting himself in the place of sinners. It's the gospel. Sin is putting anything in the place of God. Salvation is God putting himself in the place of sinners. Jesus dying on the cross. Ironically, when you're truly convicted of sin, you won't be proud of your accomplishments, but humble for your failures. You'll see that you squandered more grace than you've stewarded well. When you're convicted, you'll stand in awe of how much grace God has lavished upon you. Now she knows Jesus. Ironically, to be saved, you must fall in love with someone so great they will humble you and so humble they will melt away your self-glory. That is Jesus. We meet Jesus in his glory and we're not jealous. We meet Jesus in his humility and we're drawn to him as the only one who can give rest for our souls. Now she knows Jesus. And finally, ironically, you'll never know the love of Jesus until you know how much he hated your sin. That he would subject himself to the hideous suffering of his cross to deliver you from its eternal penalty. And at the cross we see many holy, mysterious ironies. What appeared to be a gruesome criminal's death secured glorious eternal life for any who believe. At the cross, the Prince of Peace went to war against your sins. On the cross, the only truly holy man to ever live became sin to remove Yours forever in the sight of the Father. On the cross, Jesus took all his power and used it to become weak. On the cross, the God who blesses became a curse on a tree he himself made. Oh, the irony. The sinless God makes a sinful heart his palace. And under conviction, you want that palace clean and fit for such a king of grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have claimed us as your precious possession. You've sent your spirit to awaken us, to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You've shown us you're the only hope, the only answer to helpless, desperate, frail sinners. What love you have for us, for them, for this woman. Thank you. Unleash your spirit into our hearts that he may do his work, giving us grace to agree and to see your perspective on us. 
and to agree and see that there is a Savior who bids us come, come out of our sorrow, sickness, poverty into the wealth of Jesus. Oh, we come. In Jesus' name, amen.